This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. No matter how many times I've tried, I could never sit through a horror film. No witches and ghosts for me, no creepy crawlers and slack-jawed ghouls. No fang-toothed vampires and slime-stink monsters. No werewolves in London or Paris. No walking dead with moonstone eyes. No muddy boot psychos and hockey masks. And no burn cases with knives for fingers. No killer clowns from outer space. And no creatures from the Black Lagoon. No exploding heads and flying limbs. No geysers of blood. And please, God, no disembowelments. I hate Halloween. I prefer summer to winter, and all the gold in the Federal Reserve couldn't get me to sit through a grindhouse classic. In a universe brimming with beauty, with the ever-glowing stars in the sky, mysterious planets sparking out of recession, and a sun whose licks rim the battlements of the earth, I find it more soothing to ponder the violence of creation than to watch it unspool on reel to reel. I don't understand the fascination with violence and gore, a communal bloodlust that most Americans, or should I say most American men, seem to share. They love to watch things explode, see bodies ripped apart in astoundingly creative ways, with a little help from household items made by the likes of Black & Decker and whatever else you can pluck off the shelves of your local Home Depot. We home in on the gruesome as if the bandwidth in our skulls is perpetually tuned into Blood and Guts Radio. Does watching another human being carved in flayed arouse our hidden appetites? Does it make the truly gritty horror of life more palatable? Or, instead, is it the final isolation of our hidden bloodlust, sublimation, catharsis, call it what you will? When we've reached the meridian of our lives, gray-fingered and long of tooth, I doubt that we will recall the amazingly choreographed death on the big screen, the wreck of tortured metal and the wild fling of sundry body parts, the ball of fire soaring into the sky. It will more likely be the hopeful glimmer in a child's eyes or the first time a heart and throat lover purred the three magic words into your ear, or the sound that the rain makes against the window panes of our lonely Sunday mornings. I live in a city with a long history of violence. City of tears, city of blood, city of red lights. A unidirectional city, much like our lives, for we go from birth to the grave and no more. Death is one of the constants in life, the one true knowable thing in a span rife with unknowing. There is no refusing it and no rebuttal, for one cannot bargain with death, let alone pitch with it on a windswept shore. We were, ex- were we exacting and monomaniacal enough, we could measure our lives through the very seconds, minutes, hours that have sheared past, fallen away and whispered into the dust for tick-tock time is the universal ending, and our final hour will wash over us like a midnight wave. Death is fathomable, unlike the human heart. Many years ago, in the desert in Israel, my guide recounted a story that I remember from time to time. 
Sand plays tricks, he told me, and the sun, which blackens his skin, also spills its taint into the mind like a discharge of an octopus. During one of his slow explorations, lost and starved in a blistering storm, he found himself on a high sweep of furrowed sand. Up and up he climbed, hand before his face to ward off the stinging particles, bone-tired. He glided along effortlessly as if the sand shaped steps for his ascension. Once he achieved a ridge, he had to crouch for the ceiling, which miraculously blotted the sun, lay endlessly black and starless and seemed to hang low. He felt as if he could fit his head into the sky. It refused his far. Suddenly, the sky broke in two, bent inward at the center, and amid a shower of demonic light stood what appeared to be a man. Only this man was 80 feet tall and climbed a glass stairway that illuminated the air, glowing like the bioluminescent organs of deep-sea life forms. This gargantuan man stood and glared down upon him. At least my guide thought he was a man, for he seemed to be faceless and formless, constantly shifting shape to evoke an everyman guise, dressing and undressing by night's whimsy. The gargantuan man shrunk down to human size, and when this man stood before the guide, he knew that it was devil. Only he found that he was glad to see him, as if he knew that the devil would fold him into his embrace and leave him all the richer for it, because he realized, and with great shame, he had wholeheartedly welcomed the devil. I often think that we all harbor dark passions, as this is our primitive inheritance. But instead of merely charting the course of human violence, I believe we could seek to compass what lies within the human heart, which Faulkner declared was in conflict with itself. I know that this is one of the more difficult to, nego to negotiate, for how do you describe what you cannot see? Invisible map for invisible ghosts, no doubt, but well worth looking into. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my show today is one of our most popular, God Only Knows Why, The Bad Boys of Design. This is our fourth installment of the show, and today my guests are five outstanding designers, Mike Essel, Mark Alt, Michael Jagger, Ray Fenwick, and Alberto Rigao. Before we get started with today's show, please let me tell you just a little bit more about them all. Mark Alt is President and Creative Director of MAP, a design and brand strategy firm dedicated to environmental innovation and sustainability. Mark is currently working with the Nonprofit Institute for Sustainable Communication to help develop sustainable advertising partnership, to help to develop the Sustainable Advertising Partnership, a group dedicated to reducing the carbon footprint and environmental impacts of advertising practices. As a board member of the New York chapter of the AIGA, Mark developed the concept for and chaired the first conference dedicated to design and sustainability in New York City. Mike Essel was a partner at the award-winning design firm The Chopping Block, which he co-founded in 1996 with a fellow graduate of the Cooper Union. During his six years with the firm, Mike's clients included MTV and the band They Might Be Giants. After, his, after receiving his MFA from Cranbrook Academy of Art, Mike went out on his own and has done work for Chronicle Books, DC Comics, Rizzoli, and The Smoking Gun. He is now assistant professor at the Cooper Union. In 2003, his work was featured in the National Design Triennial. Ray Fenwick is an artist, illustrator, and typographic thing maker living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. A former improv comedian and theater school dropout, Ray now occupies himself making drawings, comics, and patterns for people like Blue Q, CMT, and Nickelodeon. His award-winning comic, Hall of Best Knowledge, will be published in early 2008 by Santa Graphics. 
Michael Jagger co-founded Jagger DiPaolo Kemp Design in 1987 with Giovanna DiPaolo Jagger. His work in print packaging and branded retail environments, video and film and product graphics has been featured in design periodicals and books such as ID, print, art direction, creativity, I, how, type director's annual, and on and on and on. Michael has helped develop and implement strategies for brands including Microsoft Xbox, Burton Snowboards, Pepsi, Soapy Beverages, IBM, and many, many others. And last, but certainly not least, my dear friend, Alberto Rigao, creative director and founder of Estudio Intervinia and Editorial Reves, was educated at the S.I. Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. He specializes in book, corporate, and exhibit design. The studio space located in San Juan, Puerto Rico, is shared with his father, an architect and educator. This relationship has been the catalyst to many projects and collaborations, most notably Puerto Rico Grafico, San Juan, the island's first urban art publication. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks. Are you all there? Hello. 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 Okay, so you guys know the drill. You've listened to the show before. I'm going to start. Let's do this alphabetically in the order I introduced you. Your favorite female designer, Mark. Well, I'm not allowed to say you, but right now it's you because you're letting me raid your mini bar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can name three, actually, that have been very supportive of my career, and I'd actually like to thank them. That would be Sherry Dorr. Um, Constance Birdsall and Karen Goldberg. Very, very good. I think those choices are are noble. <laughs> Mike, what about you? I'm um, Barbara Glauber, who has a studio in New York and was one of my professors at the Cooper Union, and has really she makes amazing work, but she's also just been incredibly helpful to me personally and in my career. Wonderful. Okay, Ray. Um, I'm going to say Marion Banshees. Uh, just because, uh, you know, she has a crazy attention to detail. Her work's amazing, but also she's uh, been very, very kind to me and uh, almost a little mentor-ish in a way. So Yeah, Marion is awesome. Awesome. Good choice, Ray. You scored points today's show so far. She raised in, in the lead with his points. <laughs> Michael, what about you? I know you're going to say your wife. <laughs> well, I promise you this isn't a cop-out, but I, I do have to have to say that uh, Giovanna is definitely a, an inspiration for me, and she's uh, she has this uncanny ability to blur all the boundaries in design, and it's almost whatever she whatever she touches, whether it's the color of a shoe or a the side of a building or a printed page, it's always uh, been a complete inspiration, and she's put up with all my antics over the years, so uh, I do have to say that, that uh, and it isn't a cop-out. She's okay, my that, favorite that, designer. That's absolutely, absolutely respectable. And, Alberto, what about you? Well, I have to say my mentor actually is a female designer. Uh, her name is Peggy Stark Adams. She's a newspaper designer. Uh, she Her studio is right now in Canada. Uh, she's a full-time professor at the Pointer Institute now, and she was a mentor for me in school, and still today uh, we collaborate on a few projects every now and then. And now that I'm starting an exhibit project, she is also, so we're kind of learning together as we go on that. Wonderful. Okay, well, we got that out of the way. Now let's start with some of the hard investigative questions. Um, Mike, let's talk about your fascination with Mr. T. <laughs> Somehow I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> well, honey, you just put it all out there, so let's, let's talk about it. What is it about Mr. T that you find so incredibly fascinating? Uh, when I was a kid, my parents... 
uh, the most polite way to say this is there was heavy drug use in my house. Oh, you're a hippie. No, my parents were bikers. <laughs> so it was a little more extreme than the hippie side of things. And um, when I was a kid, there was no adult in my life other than Mr. T telling me not to do drugs and to stay in school. Uh-huh. And the joke I make all too often is that I've never done drugs in my life, and I'm a college professor. So if anyone's ever listened to Mr. T, it's been me. Oh, I see. I see. So it's arguably, you know, I feel like a little bit that my sort of he won me over in a way that in a way like saved me and helped me in my life. So now I own the largest collection of Mr. T memorabilia in the world. And you also, I understand that the partner that you have in this venture makes Mr. T dolls? No, he collects. We have a subset of our collection that are handmade Mr. T dolls that were made by people in the 80s because they look like Cabbage Patch dolls. And what do you think provoked them to make these dolls in the first place? Well, I think Mr. T at the time in, say, 84 was so popular and Cabbage Patch Kid dolls were so popular, but they were hard to get and they were expensive. So this company put out a doll pattern book that you could buy at a craft store, and then people would make the dolls based on this this pattern. And how many of these do you own? About 175. And do you... <laughs> I've been trying so hard. <laughs> so, so, where do you keep them? Well, the, the Mr. T dolls are part of Greg's collection, so he keeps them... Um, in an apartment in Harlem, but they're about to get relocated in my storage space in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. So I rent, and I basically spend $200 a month to store the excess Mr. T stuff that's not in my apartment. Now, I have a, a confession to make. Um, years and years ago, and, uh, and it's probably something I don't want to admit on, on radio, but in any case, since we're going with this subject, I might as well. I had a fascination with, with Barbie dolls. I had a fascination with Barbie dolls. I had a fascination with... Dawn dolls. I basically had a fascination with any toy product that was marketed to girls between the years of 1968 and 1971. And when I got older, I decided somehow there was some emotional thing that happened in me, and I, I wanted to recapture, I guess, that time in my life and went about uh, flea markets and then into eBay to essentially recreate not only my entire doll collection at the, t- at the time I was growing up, but then, you know, to further round it out with just about every other thing that was ever made in that time period. And when I got them, I found, I, I, I went into this sort of state of religious fervor at having found, you know, a Dawn doll dress and matching shoes in a flea market in Idaho um, because it was something that I had this emotional coveting of. So is that something that you experience when you find these Mr. T um, ephemera? Well, what's funny is that I didn't think I did, right? I I used to think that it was just about collecting and that these were these funny popular culture moments. Maybe that would be the case if they were like... Lichtenstein prints, no, but not I know. Mr. But this T. Is, the only way I can answer this is that I recently put them in storage. They used to surround me, like my bedroom was like a bunker, and there was nothing but cardboard boxes that were labeled with Mr. T this and Mr. T that. Then I put them in storage, and was suddenly very depressed. Yeah, I put all of my stuff in storage, too. <laughs> and I felt very, like... Um, some sort of like uh, attachment disorder or something. Like I felt really 
just so bummed out and so it's like I'd walk into my the room that had all the Mr. P stuff and see that it wasn't all there and I would I would want to go to my storage space <laughs> and like hang out in there. And recently I had to go um to pick it all up for a photo shoot. Like I had to pick up two or three boxes and it was so reassuring. Like I felt so comfortable sitting there going through these boxes that yes, I definitely have an attachment. <laughs> Kind of makes um, you feel safe. Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. We're yeah. all waving our freak flags right about now, listeners. <laughs> um, all right, let's let's talk about something um, else that I wanted to ask you about. Cranbrook. Cranbrook. What made you decide to go to Cranbrook? Well, I went when I was at Cooper Union. My um, my professors had all gone to Yale, and so I had a really um, a really hardcore typographic foundation. So, and I. And I considered Yale for graduate school. I considered CalArts for graduate school. And in the end, I chose Cranbrook because it's much more individualized than the other schools. Yeah, no, no classes, no grades, yeah, right? Yeah, pass-fail, basically, which um, you'd really have to fuck up to get thrown out of Cranbrook. But it's really, really hard to get in, isn't it? It's Yeah, we, we only take, like, seven kids a year at Cranbrook, and it, it, it is hard to get in because it's a, also this rigorous interview process where not only do you interview with the head of the department, you interview with every current student, and the current students weigh in on if you should go or not. And um, and actually, I went to Cranbrook in the middle of the success of the chopping block, so there were a lot of questions as to would I even stay, would I even go if I got in, and um, not questions I was asking, but people were suspicious of the fact that I wanted to get a grad degree in the middle of having this firm. And... In the end, I just decided that the firm wasn't exactly what I wanted to do at the time, and I wanted to teach, and the only way to really teach when you're young is to, like, publish a book or get a master's degree, mm. and uh, I decided to get the master's degree. And, and Cranbrook at the time, I honestly went to study under P. Scott Nakala, and P. Scott Nakala died that summer. So you studied with Elliot Earls? No, actually, I studied with Lori uh, oh. Makala for two years, and then Elliot came in right behind, like right after Lori. Um, so it was a little, it was a little bit difficult, but I found that the peers I was with who did decide to come, it was almost like proof that we were there for the right reasons. You know, that we were there for the individual study and to really just make our own work. So the, the, I really was fortunate that the, the people I studied with at Cranbrook, like the other students were just really inspirational and made really amazing work. So I have um, and one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the smoking gun. So are yeah. you a conspiracy theorist? No. It's funny. I, I'm the main – my email address is listed on the contact page for the smokinggun.com because I'm, like, the technical. I help them with tech stuff and design, and I get forwarded the most ridiculous conspiracy theories in my email to be published on the smokinggun.com. Oh, good. Tell us one really juicy one. No, no, they end up being not juicy at all. They end up being like these local things that are like, you know, my daughter went missing and they think it might be a cop from this precinct and I'm wondering if the smoking gun will run a story on my missing. And then, you know, and then I have to forward them all to the editor at the smoking gun and then I never hear anything about it. So I'm assuming that they're either all fake or that they're just not they're not weird enough to make it under the smoking gun. So, but no, I'm not. I actually believe that Oswald acted alone. You do? I do. How yeah. is that possible? I read this book. Case. Have you seen any of the footage? <laughs> I've seen. I read this book, Case Closed, and I, I'm convinced that if you read that book, because for a long time I really believed in the conspiracy around that, 
And then I it's read not a book. conspiracy, honey. <laughs> read this bookcase closed. I'll uh, buy it for okay. you. I'll send it to okay. your office. Well, well, you just lost some points. We're going to go on to Mark also. <laughs> so, Mark, you are responsible for having created GROW, the AIGA's first full-day conference, which is dedicated to design and sustainability. Um, I actually was on the board at the time when you were putting that together, and I remember there was enormous resistance and doubt as to whether or not this could even happen or even whether anybody would even go. And you proved us all wrong, not, not just wrong, but just like blatantly mistaken. And um, so I just want to ask you, um, how did you how did you come up with the idea? Why did you do it? Why were you so committed to it? And since that time, you've really committed your practice to this whole way of thinking about design. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Can I interrupt one? I'm sorry. If you can, because I know a lot of people still aren't even really sure, what does sustainability actually mean? Oh, my God. Sorry. Like like a whole radio show. Especially Um, since you're on your third beer. Oh, great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's like four more left in the minibar. Sustainability, my God. All right. Well, the classical definition is basically, you know, leaving the planet in either the same or in a better condition than as you found it. I mean, it's about as basic as it can get. Um, it's really, you know, it's really about just stewardship of the planet. And, you know, and when, in, when you look at it through the lens of uh, design and what it means for the design world, it's really, you know, what, what, is, what are the impacts that are associated with design activity? That's really what it boils down to. What is the business case for sustainable design? And... A lot of people don't really understand or don't even know. And, and, you know, a single design decision, just sitting at your computer, you know, creating a design and in Photoshop or whatever you use, Illustrator, InDesign, that single design decision, that single design artifact calls into play a tremendous supply chain, a tremendous, like, global supply chain of production of, you know, anything from printing books in China, shipping, um, the entire uh, chain of custody of the paper, energy use, waste products. It's, it's a huge kind of hidden life of design is basically what I like to call it that people are pretty much unaware of. And so to me, my board project when I was on the AIG and New York board, I, I felt it was important. It was really an idea that was gaining currency at the time in business press. It was something that meant a lot to me personally, and I felt it was important for the AIGA to really start looking at it. And it turned out that I was right because now that we, you know, now that we have that conference, um, we have a new national initiative dedicated to sustainability, the Center for Sustainable Design, which I'm co-chairing. So now you are heading, um, you're not only doing the conference on a regular basis, but you're doing this whole initiative. But your practice is also now set up around sustainable practices. Yeah, it's funny. I actually, you know, I'm on a design show, but honestly, when it comes to sustainability, I'm, I'm almost doing more consulting. It's really more management consulting. It's more of a business uh, thing these days. Um, my, You know, I used to really do a lot more traditional design, but as I've gotten more into this world, um it's really more about the business case, and it's really more about getting businesses to understand what the carbon footprint and what the, what the basically the environmental environmental impact of their printing, whether it be their print advertising, their enterprise printing. But it's actually more of a numbers game. It's really understanding the numbers behind all of it. So, do you feel that designers have an obligation to 
uh, have practices within their agencies or their firms that adhere to sustainable uh, methodologies? Well, I mean, that, that would be my hope. You know, that's what we're trying to do with this new initiative with AIJ National is to, you know, give designers information that will help them to basically make the right choices. Um, a lot of designers I know would like to, uh, you know, have a sustainable or green, whatever you want to call it, design studio, but really actually don't even know how to even go about doing it. So what we're trying to do is really just kind of explain both the nuts and bolts of what it means to do the sustainable design, but also what's the business case in, in terms of how to sell it to your clients. And, you know, in this day and age, I'm assuming that really most people are pretty much concerned with what's going on with the environment. So um, in terms of tying it to your day-to-day -day design activity, um, you'd be surprised at the, you know, what kind of impact you can have just by making a few good choices. Can you give us one good example of a choice that we could make that might immediately help collectively if we all did something together? One thing that designers could do. Well, you know, AIGA, I guess it's really traditionally been a print design uh, community. So, um, really looking at your printer, your paper choice. Um, printers are, you know, the good news is a lot of printers are beginning to come on board with this, but, you know, ask your printer the questions. We publish a lot of stuff on the on the um, CFSD website that you can actually sort of take to your printers and ask what they're, you know, do they have an environmental management policy? Do they have, you know, a, an FSC chain of uh, custody certification? Just basic things that, that you know that the people you're working with, they know, you know, you're specifying print, you're specifying paper. What is the, what is either the, you know, the carbon footprint or the environmental impact of the work? And it's, it's a really complicated subject. It's not something that you can just do easily. It's something that actually takes some research, but. Mark, if, if people wanted to get more information about this online, where would you send them? Where could you send them? Well, we're trying to get our site up and running, which is the um, sustainability.aiga.org. But that's um, not up yet? It is oh, up. It is, okay. it is up. Uh, we're, we're still working on it. But um, there are a number of other sites. Um, but if you go to that site, my contact information is there, and you can actually – I'm happy to talk to talk about this subject for hours with people. Okay, wonderful. Well, I'd like to, um, we have to take our first break, unfortunately. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and you are listening to Bad Boys of Design 2007. My guests today are five outstanding designers, Mark Alt and Mike Essel, who we've spoken to, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Ray Fenwick, Michael Jagger, and Alberto Rigao. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four hundred ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth—we cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow, the CEO and founder of Resonate, a design agency that develops the media identity for clients across a broad range of platforms. Paul, tell us how you begin the process of creating a brand for a client. We create a language that bears the brand of that company. To do that, we will take keywords of a brand attribute, smart, illuminated, and make that in 
into an icon. And so our job is to provide, quickly define that language. And it's a little bit like sculpting. You get a block, and somewhere in there is that person. And you carve that person out through this process. And the faster you can get to that, the more efficient you are, and the more time you save that customer in getting to market. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Paul Sidlow talks about creating imaginary worlds. It has been said that to live is to choose, but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go, and why you want to get there. On Reap What You Sow, with host, performance management specialist, and executive coach, Alana Daly, achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious, and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan, and it shall be success over and over again, and wealth result when you Reap regularly. Reap what you sow with Alana Daily, broadcast each Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Reap what you sow. Learn the rules of the game, then play better than anyone else. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the AIGA Leadership Retreat in Miami, Florida, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and you are listening to Bad Boys of Design 2007. My guests today are five wonderful men, Mark Alt, Mike Essel, Ray Fenwick, Michael Jagger, and Alberto Rigao. If you want to join our conversation, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. We actually have Gregory on the line. Gregory, another bad boy. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Hey, guys. Um, I want to go back to the... um Recapturing the uh, childhood toy obsession, which is something. Of course, that, you do. We were just talking about that over the break. How that's all anybody ever wants to know about Mike Essel. Forget the fact that he is a Cooper Union graduate. I mean, that he teaches at Cooper Union. That he's Cranbrook graduate. All he care, all people care about, is Mr. T. Well, it's not even Mr. T. I want to know from each one of you guys what one toy from your childhood you wish you could have again. Okay. Well. We kind of know Mike's answer, right? We know him all. More Mr. T. I don't know. Okay, so Michael, Michael Jagger, what about you? What's your toy that you wish you still had? Wow. Does it have to be an action figure? No. Okay. Um, my original Snurfer. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Alberto, what about you? Well, actually, I do have it. Um, when I was younger, I had a plastic Voltron toy. Um, but last year, my best friend got me a die-cast foot-and-a-half Boltron, which now sits in my desk. So I actually did get it back, but in, in, in even better proportion or shape. Wow. Mike Essel is shaking in, in joy awesome. over those toys. <laughs> Ray, what about you? Uh, well, back in the 80s, I had almost a whole uh, Star Wars figure collection, but then and I'd like to get it back because uh, one day we went to the beach, and I thought it would be cool to have this mass ceremony where they all got buried in separate graves, <laughs> and then I went and I and I came back and I couldn't find them. Why did you want to bury them? Well, I don't know. I just thought, 
You know, you don't get to see that. In this. What if everyone dies? You know, just everyone. Forget it. <laughs> see, this is, such a, this is such a male phenomenon. Women yeah, just but, wouldn't do that. We just wouldn't. Um, is there fire? <laughs> and, and, Mark, what about you? Oh, well, I don't know, probably something basic, like my stingray bike or something like that. Okay. Well, I, you know, being someone who um, executed, beheaded all their G.I. Joes because I had seen the Six Wives of Henry VIII on the BBC, <laughs> I, I totally, and I'm still trying to find two of the brown-haired G.I. Joes myself. So thanks, guys. I'm glad oh, thank you for calling, Gregory. Thanks for a great question. Bye. So, Michael, let's, I want to talk a little bit about you. Um, you recently had a wonderful article written about you in Fast Company. Um Tell us about how that came about. How did how did that happen? Did Fast Company just write you and say, Michael, you are the man of the hour. We want to write a big article about you. I mean, the, the subtitle of this article, listeners, in Fast Company, it's the April issue, is The Striking Power of Michael Jagger. So um, tell, tell us about how that came to be. Yeah, that was it's an, it's an interesting story. I worked with uh, Mark Bowden, was the writer on it, who is uh, an, a, an amazing person. Actually, he uh, I really appreciated the fact that he did a lot of homework and he understood where you know just perspective-wise where uh, we were coming from as a studio and the, and the work that I had done. He really was from the culture of surf, snow, and skate, and just the the realm of a lot of the work that I've done. So. It was uh, that was a cool part of it. Uh, it was a combination of connections that happened. Uh, we work with a group called MFA in in New York um, that does PR stuff with us. They actually have a firm that does uh, PR with Burton Snowboards, and uh, we connected with them, and they knew Mark, and it just seemed like a connection that made sense. So we were all kind of focused on some of the same things that were happening, and so that's how how the hookup happened. But yeah, it was a very flattering thing. It was uh, an honor to be a part of that. Now, one of the um, pull quotes that I loved in the article says, the JDK crew is a bizarro creative hit squad that helps clients zero in on their psychographic ID. So what makes your crew so bizarro? Bizarro, wow. Uh, yeah, Mark I didn't write pulled, it, that, just pulled that out of, out of his experience up here hanging out with us. Um, I don't know. I think it's it's just the fact that there's a pretty free-form environment in the way that we work. It's pretty uh, liquid and unique. A lot of people feel that the uh, the studio is very much like a, a grad school kind of environment with everything on the walls kind of dynamically happening, and uh, it's kind of a unique place, so there's some surprising stuff that goes on. And I don't know. We try a lot of pretty radical experimentation as far as collaboration. We're pretty fearless in that in the way that we set up creative experiences and things. So I think he definitely was interested in that when uh, when Mark pulled out that uh, that insight about our weirdo kind of crew. Now, you also have a half pipe on in your office. Is that true? We do. We have yeah. a skate ramp in the basement of our building, which is uh, for real. And a lot of research gets done down there, actually. Now, Tony Alva started, really hung you started out the firm with oh, your wife. Tony it's a relatively small company. I mean, a relatively um, young company. But you went from nothing to 100 people. Um, you have clients like Microsoft Xbox and a long-term relationship with Burton Snowboards. How did you make that happen so fast? Uh, well, I don't know if it's it's so fast. We've actually been around for 18 years. Well, that's pretty young for a company that's so both big and progressive. I mean, that's quite a feat. You have a lot of progressive companies that tend to be very small. You have big companies that are doing a lot of, you know, the big sort of, 
package design and, and identity work, and yet you have both, and you do both really, really well. Is there is there a secret to that you could share or just a bit of advice for people that are trying to emulate the success that you have? Uh, well, a few things I think that I've learned along the way. A lot of it, you know, when people talk about, well, what was your business plan and, you know, how did you model this? And honestly, it's, uh, you know, kind of really experimentation and a lot of uh, naivete is what kind of got us there. We were foolish enough to think we could do a lot of the things that we could do that we ended up doing. And, um, you know, there wasn't any big plan other than do do the best work that you can and it will be magnetic for you know, creative talent, it'll make a difference. And, you know, we really just believe that design distinction works. And I, that was really the, that was really the heart of, of what created it. There was no, there was no big plan. Just kind of put your head down and make it, make work that you, we were stoked about. Now, Burton uh, has been a client for a very long time. Has it been since the beginning? Yeah, actually, Burton was one of our very first clients. When so, I was 18 year, 18-year relationship with a client that you see very rarely. The only time I'm even aware of things like that um, are if you uh, work with Pentagram or you have an advertising agency. So, what do you attribute that success to? Uh, have you part kept of them happy is... for 18 years? Have you kept your work new and fresh for 18 years? Uh, well, I have a philosophy called kill what you know, which is something I really believe in. I think the ability to unlearn is is probably at the heart of it. I mean, I really try to inspire that in everybody that's part of what we're doing here and, and in clients as well. That If you have that ability to kind of un, unlearn what you've done before, then you can certainly keep it fresh and moving. I think that's one of the... The big traps that exist right now in the in the whole brand design scene, in particular, that you know, as many brilliant books and things are out there, and all the you know the the wonderful stuff that gets written and all the experimentation, I think that the industry is kind of trapped in this place where there's just so much brand speak bullshit going on that people are getting caught up in that, and it really uh, is is turning into something that's a trap. I think mm-hmm. um, so that ability to sort of unlearn all those things and strip it back to and essence and understanding storytelling and, you know, connecting and really just being part of the audience. I think that's that's it. Um, you know, with Burton, it was, you know, we were kind of growing a culture as well as, you know, helping a, a business be born. Uh, we were being, we were sort of happening as a, as a culture ourselves, as a design studio at the same time as building the, helping to build a culture of snowboarding and a culture of Burton. So we were learning together, and it happened to be a, you know, and continues to be a group of people that are pretty fearless about experimentation and, you know, just feeds itself. It's very organic. Right. Well, I actually, we could do a whole show on that comment, Michael, and I think you'll have to come back for a whole show so we can talk a bit about, a bit more about what you're saying. We have another caller on the line I'd like to take, Amy from Chicago. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. I have a sort of two-part question, and the first part of it is for all the guys, and it's, do you think that there's a glass ceiling for women in design? And the second part of my question question. is for Debbie. How come you don't have a minibar again? (laughs) Um, Okay, so the question for all the gentlemen, do you feel like there's a glass ceiling? And and Amy, you said that you have a two-part question? Yeah, the part for you is how come you don't have bad girls of design? Because we're all bad. I don't have every <laughs> single girl on the show. We're all bad girls. Um, but let's, yeah. we'll answer seriously. Um, gentlemen, you're, you're, the, question, the first question was to you, and then I'll come back and answer that question. I mean, if I could just chip in right away, I mean, we're sitting here with Debbie, who's done an incredible job with her career. I mean, not only in her professional career, but she's really helped elevate the whole profession of design through this radio show, through her involvement with conferences, 
far as more kissing ass here, but it's true. I mean, Debbie has done quite a bit for us. And, you know, there's a lot of women I know in the design community that are actually considered leaders. So I don't know if really this, I think design is pretty much wide open. I really don't see that at all. It's my personal view. Okay. Mike is looking very furrowed here. The easiest, I mean, he's right. I mean, I, it's a hard thing. I don't really have the perspective of the glass ceiling. I mean, I know it, it, in my job I'm in a situation to hire women and men, and I actually the last five hires I've had I think have all been women. So from my point of view, no, but I'm a white male. You know, I'm like, I have the keys to the kingdom, so I don't even know if I can really answer that question. I think Debbie can answer it better than any of us could. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, I will answer the question, actually. I'd love to answer the question, but but I, I do want to be fair to the caller and, and have all the boys answer. So um, we have Ray, we have Michael, well, I, and we yeah, have Alberto it, it, left. So I let's mean, do it quickly, because I also want to make sure we get time to talk with Ray and Alberto about their work. Yeah, very quickly, I will just say, uh, uh, living in uh, where I do in Halifax in Canada, there's, uh, there's definitely no glass ceiling in my work. In a studio with uh, uh, with uh, two women and two men, and uh, yeah, I just don't I don't see it. In fact, I, I in, uh, around here it just seems like there's uh, uh, more women than men as as designers. If that means absolutely anything, I don't know. Okay, and Delbert. Well, here um, actually, I graduated uh, from school from a 16 class, and there was only three guys in the mm. class. And then here in Puerto Rico, actually, most individual designers, most graphic designers are women. Um, I think it's like 80% women, 20% men here. So I don't kind of see, you know, I don't see the, re- the possibility of not being women in the design world, at least in my scenario. And, Michael, I think you're the only one left that has an answer to the question. I, I think that, uh, thankfully, we're in an industry that doesn't doesn't really have that ceiling. It's certainly nothing that we've ever supported. I think there are other other industries that it's a major problem in, and it still really exists. Thankfully, I think the creative community, it's, it's not an issue. It's about who you are and what you bring and creative. Okay, guys, I'm just going to slap you all silly. And everything is lovely in Candyland. Amy, thanks for asking the question. It's it's a big topic. I think um, one of the benefits of the five gentlemen that are on the show today is their youth, and the fact of the matter is there is a lot more opportunity in in with with this younger generation. I recently uh, took a class at SCA with Milton Glaser. Twenty eight people in the class, three men, twenty five women, and I teach at the School of Visual Arts, and I would say very similar. Uh, proportions of men to women in the classes that I'm teaching, the young, the young people that I'm teaching. That being said, it is a tough, tough, tough reality to hear that there is still very much a glass ceiling. It's a very tough, uh, Mark is shaking his head. Um, yeah, you, you try to have a baby and a family and a career and, and be as famous as some of the men that are out there and, you know, I think people ask me a lot, you know, what, how have you gotten as far as you've gotten? And I say, I'm not married. I don't have kids. It's a lot easier for me. Um, any of the women that are out there working, their asses off, that have children and families know that there are compromises that have to be made. I'm in a situation where I don't have to make as many compromises. And um, those, are, those are tough choices. Those are really tough choices. It's not a matter of talent. It's a matter of time. And it's a matter of commitment to your career. There's no difference in the talent between men and women. I would even argue that some of the women I know far outshine their male counterparts in similar jobs, but that's just me. Um, it's really a matter of... You're like a total of, asshole now. Not, <laughs> as well you should. 
But um, Amy, thanks for asking the question. As far as why um, there's no Bad Girls show, primarily I was spoofing off of the original Bad Boys movie. Um, never realized the show would get as popular as it had, and the request to be on the show and to one of the new show, one of the new Five Guys coming out. Um, I think next year I'm going to do a Bad Boys of Design, but I'm going to feature five women on the show. So thanks for calling. Thank you. Okay. Um, Ray, I want to talk about your work. I first saw your work when I was judging um, a, a juried show in Canada, and I saw your work and was knock-kneed when I saw it. I thought it was some of the most original, interesting, and mind-blowing work that I'd seen in a long time, and I actually voted your piece Best in Show. Um, you got a big piece in print magazine a couple of issues back where you were featured as uh, somebody to watch. Tell us about your work. Tell us about your upcoming book. And how does it feel to be one of these young things that's getting all this notoriety so early in life? Uh, well, I don't know about the whole notoriety thing, to be honest. I mean, it's I'm pretty far removed, uh, like being where I am, and um, you know, I'm in a fairly smallish town in in Canada, so I have no uh, no perspective on it, but. Uh, um, the print thing was amazing, you know. I, I, I mean, am- amazing for me because it, you know, was uh, pretty flattering. But mostly because uh, I've just got to meet so many crazy nice people. Like, I really felt like before, <laughs> like I, I, you know, I am a designer, you know, who draws lots of the time. But like, uh, I often felt like I didn't want to hang out with designers because they're kind of all. It's kind of like uh, super testosterone, always hyper-confident, and, like, that's just not who I am and not who I want to hang out with. And so I kind of had this sort of sort of uh, crappy view of, of designers. But uh, since since that piece and meeting all these people who are just, you know, who are passing my name on to, to other people, and it's just uh, really has turned me around, and I realized that uh, I was just an asshole, really. You know, and, you know. <laughs> Well, tell, tell us about your comic Hall of Best Knowledge. That's the piece that I saw in the competition several years back that I really fell in love with. Um, what, how did you come up with the name Hall of Best Knowledge? And for the listeners that might not be aware of the work, where can they see it and what can, how can you describe it to them so that they can get a slight visual of it? Right. Well, I, I guess first of all, uh, I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. Um, they can just, if you Google my name, Ray Fenwick, um, you can go to my Flickr site um, or my regular website, and there's uh, samples of the comic there you can check out. Um, and it's going to be, uh, I think you mentioned, published uh, early next year with Fantagraphics, um, and that'll have some extra stuff in it. But um, the name Hall of Best Knowledge, uh, because it's sort of what it is, it's, it's this... Uh, um, I, I sort of don't want to give it away, but it's uh, it's a sort of unknown, unnamed author, and it's all just t- uh, mostly typographic, so that you're only getting the sense of his voice through the through the typography and stuff. And it's uh, it's just this unknown author who uh, uh, really has a strong desire to be smart. You know, basically is the basis of it, and it's so, sort of themes. The themes are sort of like uh, this idea of of, of the sort of power of knowledge and, and for people who really want it so badly and, and, and what that does to a person and and uh, and the sort of visually um, I'd imagine this character as this person who uh, is is really smart for his age whatever that age might be but um, just is is smart in a way that has no relevance to to the to the world outside of his 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 home so his uh, the visual sources are totally all over the place 
because I just imagined this person who had spent tons of time in a library, but not a lot of time uh, to give any of that context. So he's got all this weird knowledge and weird visual aesthetic, uh, and sort of that's what it sort of looks like. Um, yeah. Now, has your background as a, an improv comedian influenced your work at all, and why did you stop doing stand-up comic work? <laughs> well, that was like fairly, yeah, that was definitely fairly early on, and I stopped doing that because uh, I actually, uh, a friend introduced me to, I started designing rave flyers. Remember raves? Of everyone? <laughs> yeah, I started designing rave flyers, and, uh, and I was like, yeah, Mark is the it. one that just snorted listeners. No, I think they're great. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a while ago. It wasn't like two months ago. Um, uh, and so I started that, and I just thought, yeah, forget it, man. Design is, is where it's at. I'm, and I also didn't want to be an actor, and I just thought, what am I going to do improv for the rest of my life? Although some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I there's anything uh, wrong with that. Um, but anyways, yeah, so uh, I think... After after design school, I did a, a, a design degree here in Nova Scotia, and uh, and I you know up to that point been doing pretty you know this standard design stuff. And one of my teachers just sort of came up to me and said, uh, you know, you should really you you have some funny ideas. You should do more funny stuff, <laughs> which is hilariously simple. Like I was just looking for some guidance from my from my teacher. You know, it's like you've seen it on TV where the very last day the student goes to the teacher and it's like. What should I do with my life? And that's what he told me. And so I thought, oh yeah, that would be fun. Well, congratulations! It's really beautiful work. Alberto, speaking of Milton Glaser, that's where we met. You and I met in Milton Glaser's class several years back, where we were trying to figure out our lives. And uh, it was such a pleasure to meet you. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing. First of all, you're giving up a wonderful practice in Puerto Rico. I've actually never met anybody quite as young as you are that's as successful. I have to be honest there. You're giving up your, your entire practice to go back to school. Yeah. You're moving from Puerto Rico to South Carolina? North Carolina. North Carolina. Why? <laughs> Why? Why? Um, well, I come from a family background, uh, strong in academics. Uh, my dad was a dean and a professor, and I'm actually interested in teaching. I've already done um, some basic teaching here at a college level and high school level, and so I want to go back into school and also um, explore that aspect of teaching. And then on the other side, uh, I ended up doing bachelor's at the Newhouse School because I started in advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after a semester, I moved into design, um, and then I stayed at Syracuse because uh, I was also doing uh, some anthropological work there. And so I want to go into design school and be in a design school for at least some time. Now, I found this quote online. I'm actually Jen, my, my wonderful re- researcher, found it. And she said, this is what it says. This is you talking. What I know is that my, as my career unfolds, I will do everything in my power to prevent being labeled as a graphic designer. I want to explore. I do not only want to do print design. I do wish eventually to be labeled a designer. I want to be known as someone who can manipulate many mediums and forms. So tell us about the term graphic designer and, and why the uh, apprehension really of the label. To find that. <laughs> no, um, no, but that that was I actually wrote that when I was at the Pointer Institute after school uh, three years ago. Um, well, basically, uh, when I was in school, everybody was doing print or web, and I've always thought that there's more to that, um, which actually I've been able to explore in my practice, uh, other than the daily work, you know, of newsletters or books or etc. I've been going now into other fields um, like exhibit design, 
um, where I've been able to work uh, thanks to the fact that I share a studio with my father where he has people who works in, you know who work in wood and steel and do construction I've been able to explore those aspects to take it to another level now the aspect of graphic designer is the fact that at the time uh, here in Puerto Rico when I got back you know everybody was like oh you're a graphic designer so you work from your home and that was for me a little bit you know um, on the downside because I came from being in the U.S. where there's design studios. The fact here is that here there's not a single design studio per se uh, as there are in the States because here graphic design is done by freelancers, small little studios, or in advertising firms. Mm-hmm. And at the time I really wanted to branch out and explore other aspects um, such as industrial design, um, which I've been able to do. Um, none, of, none of these designs have yet to go into production, but I've been exploring with my father, um, like, door designs or mailbox designs or sculptural walls, um, kind of like what Sheila de Randyberg built us in, like, parks and such. Mm-hmm. But these are more sculptorical in the sense because we take construction to another level. We're using styrofoam to make molds, etc. Um, hopefully we're going to do a project soon where there's this typographical wall, all of, made, all of it made in solid concrete. We'll see if that happens. But at the time I was feeling, which is what I feel now, why I want to go to school, I don't want to stay strictly on what I do every day, but I want to be able to explore. I'm really impressed by these other people, like Michael Jagger and his firm, how, you know, it's so big and they do all this amazing work. That's, you know, kind of like the road where I would like to go. Wonderful. Well, gentlemen, we have come to nearly the end of the show, believe it or not, which I'm I'm very, very sad about. Um, I'm going to ask you all one last question. I'm going to start with you, Alberto, and then we're going to go in reverse alphabetical order. Your one hope for the future in your career, Alberto. Um, to be able to reopen another new studio in a few years. Michael. To make design that matters. Wonderful. Ray. Uh, I'm going to steal from uh, Sagmeister and say that I'd like to just uh, make stuff that touches people in some way, I think. Mike? I just want to keep making work. Like, I don't really want to be an art director. and I don't really aspire to do anything other than be a graphic designer, so I want to make work and teach how to make work. And Mark? Um, the obvious answer for me, which is I just hope that the work I'm doing now will inspire designers to actually think about the environmental impact of their design decisions. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We've come to the end of this broadcast of Design Matters. I want to thank you all, Mark Alt, Mike Ethel, Ray Fenwick, Michael Jagger, and Alberto Rigao, five wonderful and inspiring designers at all different points in their lives and careers. I'd like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe. Big thanks as well to Brian Travis and Ruben Colomb and Jeff at Voice America and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, also to Edwin Rivera for his exceptional writing. Joining me next week on the 75th and Season 4 finale of Design Matters is this spectacular Shepard Ferry. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. 
right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. 